We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. Good morning again, church. It's good to be with you in this manner this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we will be picking back up. We have the privilege of, of diving back into our study of Mark this morning. And if you're new to the hill or uh, new to watching online, typically we preach through books of the Bible. That's what we do. And we are in Mark chapter 12 this morning, which means that we have began in Mark chapter 1, and over the last year or so, we've worked through the first 11 chapters, and here's where we are this morning. So it's a privilege that you get to join us, and we're excited that you're here. We've been tackling uh, our study in the Gospel of Mark under the theme, uh, Surveying the Son of, of God. And the question we have been asking and we began with as we opened up our series is, uh, who is Jesus, and why is he important for my life and, and your life? And it's even an important question to consider this morning as we pick back up in our series. Now, in the first seven chapters, uh, Mark has he, he focused really on the first part of this question, who is Jesus? He described uh, Jesus as the prophesied one and the one uh, confirmed by the Father as his beloved son in his baptism in chapter 1. Jesus is the one we've seen who cast out demons. He is the one with power to heal the sick and raise the dead. Jesus is the one who, claim, who calms the seas with his own voice. And then he is the one who walks upon those very seas. He feeds thousands with a few fish and loaves. The identity of the Son of God has been on full display in these first seven chapters of Mark's Gospel. But then we, we made a shift in chapters 8 through 10 to consider uh, the issue of discipleship, or what does it look like to follow Jesus, the Son of God? We learn that to follow Jesus, one must deny themselves and take up their cross. We learn that following the Son of God demands surrendering lordship of our lives over to the Son of God. But then another shift happened in chapter 11, which brings us to our final section where we are even this morning. We entered Mark's passion section of his narrative, which really covers the final week of his life here on earth. It began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in chapter 11. And it will end with his death upon the cross and glorious resurrection. But in the middle of this busy week, a, a confrontation with the leader of Israel is brewing and will shortly come to a head. And it's really where we find ourselves this morning. In chapter 12, as I said, we come to the, the second of two important parables in Mark's gospel. If you remember, we addressed the parable of the sower back in chapter 4. And now we come to this judgment parable known as the parable of the tenants. And before we dive into the details of this rich parable, I want to give you my my main idea this morning, so you'll really know where we're headed. And here it is. Jesus is the beloved Son, 
sent by the Father as the full expression of His love and glorious purposes in the Gospel. Jesus is the beloved Son sent by the Father as the full expression of His love and His glorious purposes towards us in the Gospel. I'm going to begin reading in Mark uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read through the first 12 verses. This is God's Word to us. And He, being Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant uh, to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Now, parables, parables were an important uh, part of Jesus' teaching ministry. Parables are really practical stories that use common tasks or objects to illustrate spiritual truth. And, and Jesus employed them often both to instruct and to warn, as we even see this morning in our text. And very importantly, Jesus' parables, they had a way of both revealing truth to some, while at the same time concealing truth to others. And that's what really makes our parable this morning somewhat rare and unique. For both, uh, the, the revealing and the concealing happens to the same group of people in this parable, the religious leaders. It's kind of interesting. In one sense, the, the meaning of this parable could not be any clearer to them. We see that in verse 12. But in another sense, they have no idea what is actually being said here. Now, the, the telling of this parable takes place on Wednesday, two days before Jesus' crucifixion. And right, on the, right, right before Jesus' confrontation in the temple with the religious leaders back in chapter 11, where Jesus, he cleansed the temple or he overturned tables and, and threw out the money lenders and he denounced really the religious practices happening in the temple. And this event led to the religious leaders confronting Jesus and challenging his authority. So with this as the backdrop, Jesus now tells this parable to these same religious leaders who in just a few short days will be responsible for ordering his death. 
And Jesus begins in verse 1 with a, a common image of the day. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to walk through this parable again and just kind of uh, summarize the details for us. And then I'm going to spend time pulling out four important lessons I think we gather from this. So, but Jesus begins in verse 1 with a common image. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. If you lived in Jerusalem, you were familiar with vineyards and the process of farming. Landowners would often rent out their land to tenant farmers when they went on long trips. Really, every trip would end up being a long trip due to travel in this time. And when they would do this, an agreement or contract would be made uh, between the, the tenants uh, that the tenants would care for and work the land to ensure the crop. The proceeds would then be split between the owner and the tenant based upon their agreement. Everything necessary for the production of the fruit would have been provided by the landowner. The tenants would have been hired to steward and to care for the land in order to produce the fruit. A very common scenario of this time. But what's uncommon here is the behavior of both the tenants and the landlord at the time of harvest, which we see in verse 2. It says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. As expected, the landowner sends one of his tenants to collect on terms of their agreement. But the unthinkable takes place in verse 3. Look at it again. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So instead of receiving what really belonged to his master, the servant, is denied payment. He's beaten and he's sent on his way. Then unexpectedly in verse 4 it, we find, again, he sent to them another servant. And this time they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. This is really outrageous. What kind of people are these tenants? Who do they really think they are? How dare they do something like this? But then it gets worse, right, in verse 5. And, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. This thing is really out of control at this point. First they beat the servant, then smash his head and dishonor him, and now they're murdering the servants that he sends. But just when you think this story can't get any more outrageous, we come to verse 6. The landowner apparently has one more he will send. Verse 6, he had one, still one other, a beloved son. And this is the point in the story. We have to be like, wait, wait, this, this is too much, right? He's not actually going to send his son to these clowns, is he? His special son, his beloved son, the heir of this very property, Knowing how wicked these tenants are, why would he send his beloved son? Verse 6, finally he sent him to them saying they will respect him. But instead of showing him respects, the tenants plot to kill him. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Foolishly, these wicked tenants think killing the son will give them a right to the land. So they murder the beloved son and even refuse him a proper burial. They throw him out of the vineyard, the text says. 
And then after telling this outrageous story to these religious leaders, Jesus turns his attention to them and asks them a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And then he answers, he will come and destroy the tents and give the vineyard to others. Then Jesus asks a second question, which is really the clarifying question, which opens the meaning of the parable to these guys. He said, he asked, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. These religious leaders now get it. They understand. They recognize the truth of this parable at this point. Their eyes are open to the fact that Jesus is speaking to them. So how do they respond? Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Now, that's pretty much the gist of this parable. It's, it's kind of straightforward. So for the rest of our time, I, I want to highlight what I see as four truths which arise from this parable and really help us understand the true meaning and the depth of this story. And the first point is this. God is kind towards us in His provision. God is kind towards us in His provision. In the telling of this parable, Jesus is actually alluding to a well-known image given by God through the prophet Isaiah some six to seven hundred years prior. In Isaiah 5, which Jesus is quoting, the owner or the one who planted this vineyard is the Lord. And the vineyard is His people, Israel at this time. And Isaiah tells us how the Lord planted Israel in the land. He blessed them and provided everything they needed to bear fruit. And yet they brought forth sour grapes. In other words, their fruit was useless. So the Lord, in Isaiah 5, asked, What shall I do to my vineyard? The very question we hear Jesus speak in this parable. Answer, I will destroy my vineyard, he says. And we know from our study in Nehemiah, Babylon would topper Jerusalem. It would destroy the temple and take the people into captivity just as Isaiah warned. So Jesus' opening line of this parable in Mark 12 should have immediately connected with these religious leaders. But it didn't, at least until verse 12. But what's evident in Isaiah and reiterated by Jesus here in Mark is the Lord's kindness in providing for His vineyard, His people. He spared no expense in His provision. Everything necessary to produce good fruit was provided by the owner. God planted this vineyard. As Isaiah said, He dug it, cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He put up a fence and to keep intruders and wild animals out. He dug a pit for the wine press, which would have come from solid rock to collect the juice. He even built the tower, a place for both storage and shelter. God is kind in His provision towards His people Israel. He chose them. He called Abraham from Ur to become the father of the people and bring about blessing to all the earth. He chose Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and to receive his good law. He raised up Joshua to lead them into the promised land where he planted them safely in Canaan, removing all their enemies. 
Psalm 44.2 says, You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. In His kindness, God provided everything necessary for His people to produce fruit. So, His expectation was very much understandable. They were to steward all He had provided in His kindness by bearing fruit. And yet they did not. Now, it would be easy for us to leave the relevance of this passage in the past. But as one author says, we as New Testament believers farm a far richer vineyard than ancient Israel. While we may not have living prophets like Isaiah, we have the the completed Word of God in our laps this morning. We have the, the risen Christ, the full revelation of the Old Testament, whom we celebrated last week Uh, during Easter. And furthermore, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us and enabling us to truly bear fruit. We must see that God places no less expectation on His people today as He did in the past. We are to bear fruit. We are to take part in His fruitful expansion of His kingdom in this world. We are to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. His expectation is has not changed. But neither has His provision. God has been oh so kind to us in His provision. He has provided us as His people everything we need. We have His Word. We have His Spirit. We have His people. And we have the clarity of His mission. We are to bear fruit in accordance to His kind vision. So first, we see that God is kind in His provision. But second we see that God is patient towards us in His love. Now in the Old Testament, God's particular love for His people is described in terms of His, of his patience, his, his faithfulness, His forbearance, His long-suffering, which is exactly what we see in our text. But God's patient, faithful love is, is found against the backdrop of the utter wickedness and rebellion of these tenants, whom we know exactly uh, represent the religious leaders. That's <coughs> evident. They even know that by verse 12. These are the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who confront Jesus at every turn in His ministry. They are the ones who will arrest Jesus and take Him before Pilate to be crucified. And this is the exact group of people who we find in the book of Acts confronting the disciples, beating them, imprisoning them, and demanding they stop preaching Jesus following His resurrection. These leaders represent the wicked leadership of Israel currently and in the past. They represent the religion that Jesus opposes with the strongest of terms. And notice very importantly in this parable, the owner demonstrates himself oddly patient towards their rebellion and wickedness. Well, he had the right to take action towards them the very first time they rejected his servant. He patiently endured multiple servants even as the wicked tenants' response escalated. They beat them, smashed their heads, shamed them, and then even murdered his servants. Now, who are these servants? That's an important part to consider in this parable. These servants are the, 
the faithful prophets sent by the Lord time and time again throughout history. Hebrews 1 reminds us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And sadly, Hebrews 11 records the reception of many. It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword. We know the prophet Jeremiah was beaten and placed in stocks. The prophet Isaiah was believed to have been sawed in two. Jeremiah, we know, was, was stoned. And then, of course, John the Baptist was beheaded back in chapter 6. Throughout redemptive history, God patiently sent His prophets to warn His people over and over again while the leaders of Israel persisted in causing the people to rebel. God was patient towards His people's rebellion. I want you to consider this morning the the forbearing long-suffering patience of God towards you. If you don't know what that's like, you might not be a believer this morning. If you know anything of your sin, if you know anything of what it means to know the Lord Jesus, then you recognize with utter clarity the kind, tender patience He showed you in your sin. God's patience and His long-suffering in this story spills over in the most unusual way in verse 6. Really in the, the climactic moment in this parable. It says, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, He sent him to them. In response to their wickedness, the owner sends his son as the heir, the one possessing legal claim over the vineyard. As it's been noted here, the, the, this is the son. The son goes as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to proclaim what's due to the father. Though the former slaves were many, servants were many, this son is the unique one. While they were all hirelings, he's the heir. While they were forerunners, he is the last and final word of the father. He's the father's beloved son. Now there's a question here we should ask, and it rises out of the tension of this text. What father in his right mind would surrender over his son to these tenants? Why would anyone do such a thing? James Edward says it's a question worth asking, for it suggests the indefatigable love of God. In other words, this parable exposes us to the exhausting depths of God's love towards rebel sinners like you and me. God held nothing back. This owner gave his very best, his beloved son. And this phrase, beloved son or only son, is a, is a phrase filled with rich biblical and theological significance. The language takes us back to Abraham taking Isaac, his only son, up on the mountain. It echoes of John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only beloved Son. It reminds us of Mark chapter 1, verse 11, when the Father declared from heaven of Jesus at His baptism, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
But most assuredly, it rings, especially this event and the way it's being portrayed in Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets as we've already read. But in the last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed heir of all things. We must not miss the portrait this parable paints of our Savior. Jesus is the full expression of God's patient, long-suffering love towards us. Now, I am very aware that what's in view here is the particular sin and wickedness of these religious leaders. But if you or I think for a moment this passage doesn't speak to us, we would miss it altogether. Oh, how patient and kind God has been to us in our sin. God has every right to act in His justice swiftly and strongly towards us in our sin. That's the tension of the narrative, right? Justice screams. The owner acts swiftly and strongly towards these tenants. But have you come to terms with the swift justice due you for your sin? And yet you haven't received it. Instead of acting in His justice, God acts towards us in His Son by His grace. He is patient and long-suffering towards us in His love by, by the sending of His beloved Son on a mission to rescue us from our sin. Do you know, do you see the kindness, patient love of God towards you in your sin? I want you to consider for a moment that sin that dark sin that you know of that others don't know that you would be mortified if people knew about you and I want you to remember that God knows fully and that he has not acted in his justice towards you in the light of your wickedness and rebellion, and that sin you so desperately don't want people to know, He has responded to you patiently, kindly, long-suffering in His love, in His Son towards you. Commenting on this passage, Charles Spurgeon says, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the love of the Father and His Son, he says, if you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifested. Jesus is the full expression of God's patient, long-suffering love towards us. But He's thirdly. We see that God is certain towards us in His judgment. Seeing the Son may have led these tenants to believe the, the landowner had died. We're not really sure what their process, thought process was here, but they foolishly and really in utter wickedness decide to do away with the son. They, they kill him and they seek to take over the property for themselves. They even here refuse him the proper burial by throwing him out of the vineyard. 
And here's the reality. In just three days, this sad scene will play out at the hands of these wicked tenants. These same religious leaders will stand before Pilate and yell, crucify the Son of God. They will throw this beloved son out by hanging him on a tree outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Jesus will be rejected and killed by these wicked tenants. Now, it's important here. We, we, we understand, biblically speaking, it's true, God is never less than love in the Bible. But He certainly is more. And this parable instructs us regarding the certainty of God's judgment for rejecting His Son. The, the question in verse 9 really echoes like a, a thunderclap from the mouth of Jesus. Repeating the, the same question found in Isaiah chapter 5 by the prophet from the Lord Himself. Jesus asked the religious leaders, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And Jesus spills forth a swift response at the end of verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Point being, rejecting the son brings certain judgment. It's the final straw. He's the final one that the father sent. There's no more prophets are coming. There will be no more servants. He's the last one to reject Jesus. To reject the beloved son is to accept certain judgment. Again, I want to quote Charles Spurgeon at length here again. Commenting on this passage, he says, on this passage, he says Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is the ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. I have heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel sets before us. It is a fable with nothing in Scripture to warrant it. Rejecting Christ, you have rejected all. You have shut against yourself the one door of hope. Christ, who knows better than all pretenders, declares that he that believeth shall not be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who believe not in Jesus. God's judgment is certain for those who reject His Son. Because there is no hope outside of the Son. Now, historically speaking, God's judgment played out on the religious leaders and the nation of Israel for their rejection of Jesus in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed and the nation was toppled again. We're going to see this in the upcoming chapters. We're going to talk about this more. And this time, God says He's going to give the vineyard to another, as the text says. He would place it under the authority of twelve simple Galilean men, the apostles, who would then, in fact, expand His vineyard to all nations. But the reality is, for all of us this morning, the same judgment that Jesus issues to these religious leaders for the rejection of His Son stands for all of us today. As Hebrews says, it stands for all of us who trample the Son of God underfoot and insult the Spirit of grace. 
Friends, according to the Bible, history is not some endless cycle of repetition. History is moving towards uh, the point of completion of all God's purposes. And all His purposes rest on the person and work of His beloved Son. And the final day of judgment will make this plain to all. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, for all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know about you, but this this pandemic has, well, I do know about you, this pandemic has caused us all to miss multiple appointments. It's caused us to reschedule lots of appointments, almost every one of our appointments. Friends, the Bible is clear. Everyone has an appointment with God. There will be no rescheduling. You will not miss this appointment. God will rightfully judge our lives fairly. And He will do it fully. And He will do it finally on that day. God's purposes will prevail. That's the message of the Bible. And the only question that will matter on that day is what have you done with his son it all hangs on him for he is the he is the full and final word from god he is the final and full expression of the revelation of god god gave us his son his beloved son what else do you want from Him? He held nothing back. And you and I will be, will have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account. And the question that will remain before all of us is, what have we done with His Son? There's a fourth component here, a fourth truth I want us to see. And it's this one that really rounds out this parable, and it's this. God is glorious towards us in the gospel. God is glorious towards us in the gospel. Jesus asked a final question here in verse 10, which, in fact, is what opens the meaning of this parable. He says, Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus shifts the imagery here from a, from a vineyard now to a building in verse 10 by way of a quotation from Psalm 18, which we opened with this morning and even Pastor Bob prayed. Interesting though, this is the, this is the same psalm the people quoted from the previous chapter as Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It's, so it's clearly a, a messianic psalm, meaning it refers to the coming Messiah. So again, we see here further evidence Jesus was consciously aware of both His identity and His mission as the Son of God. Now, this image depicts a rejected stone considered worthless and of no value that in fact becomes the, the cornerstone, the, the keystone or the most important stone ensuring both the stability and symmetry of the structure. And this rejected stone would become a, a well-known symbol in early Christianity as an explanation for the Jewish rejection of Jesus. It shows up very importantly in Acts chapter 4 and 
Romans chapter 9 and 1 Peter 2. Jesus is here declaring himself as this stone, which is being, and more importantly, will be rejected by Israel. Israel's repeated failure and apostasy of rejecting God's word through God's messengers finds its final form in the violent and unjust crucifixion of his son. They rejected and cast his son aside as, a, as worthless and of no value. And yet, this is described as marvelous, wonderful, even breathtaking. Look at verse 11. This, is, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Remember the scripture that I opened our service with in Psalm 118 where it talks about that salvation has entered, righteousness has come. All of this has come and it's marvelous by this rejection of the Son. So in a marvelous reversal, God takes what man rejects and makes it the cornerstone. Literally the, the head of the corner, the keystone, the most important stone to the whole building structure. Jesus' rejection, His humiliation and crucifixion is an apparent tragedy. But God uses it for His wonderful, glorious purposes that can only be described as, it says, the Lord's doing and something marvelous in our eyes. But it's this wonderful reality that the religious leaders are blind to. Upon hearing this, verse 12 says, they seek to arrest Jesus and move forward with their rejection and ultimately killing of Jesus. But by so doing, they in fact bring about the glorious purposes of God in the gospel. You see, because Jesus didn't just die as a religious threat, as they saw him, to the leaders and the nation. He died as God's very son, as the substitute for their sin and all who would believe on him. He was rejected by man, but accepted by God. He died as a rejected stone, the one bearing our sin, shame, and rejection. And then he rose as the exalted, accepted chief cornerstone of a new temple, the church, the full expression of God's people, including both Jews and Gentiles. It's a beautiful, glorious reality. Do we see the wonderful, marvelous, glorious reality of the gospel in this rejection? That we have, in fact, become the very people of God through it. As our brother Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to quote this very passage and then he gives that great conclusion that great conclusion that you are a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that we might declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the, the glory of the gospel and the rejection of Jesus, bringing the exaltation of Jesus bearing our rejection and allowing us to become His people. And so the question is, again, 
Do you see how wonderful, how marvelous, how glorious God has been towards us in the gospel? He sent his beloved son to us, sinners and rebels, to be rejected by his own people in order to save all who believe in him. Jesus, again, was rejected by men in order that we might be accepted by God. So how do we respond to this text? And I want us to consider two ways. You can respond as the religious leaders did. That's an option here. They responded over and over again by seeing truth, hearing truth, justifying their sin and justifying their rejection of Jesus over and over again. They argued, they they. They argued, they confronted, they played tricks, they played games, all in an attempt to justify their own sin and elevate themselves. They refused to repent and submit to the Lordship of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Instead, they said, let's get rid of him. Remove him. But verse 12 says something really important here. The only thing that stood in their way between accepting Jesus Accepting his salvation, repenting and believing him, and then receiving his eternal damnation. It says they were fearful, right? Their fear of what the reaction of the people might be. It says they feared the people. I want to ask you a question this morning if you're not a Christian and you're watching. What keeps you from being a Christian? Is it really your unanswered questions? Is it really that Jesus is not sufficiently good and glorious and true and kind and loving? Or is it that you're paralyzed from moving forward out of fear? Is it your fear of what others will think of you? Is it a fear of losing faces, a fear of what it might cost you? I want you to be honest this morning with yourself. How much of your hesitation and supposed doubts are really just a mask of fear you hide behind? I want to challenge you to to look once more into the face of this Jesus. Listen again to the words He speaks. Gaze upon how He loves the unlovely. Ponder again who He claims to be. And reflect once more on His willingness to endure the punishment that sinners like you and me deserve. But there's a, there's a second response this morning. It's to see Jesus as the rejected stone who has become the very cornerstone of our life. The very cornerstone of life and hope and joy and forgiveness. He's much more than a common stone. He is the expression of God's kind provision towards us. He's the embodiment of God's patient love towards us. He's He's our certain escape from God's justice for all who trust in Him. And He is everything that is marvelous and wonderful and glorious in the Gospel. He is our only hope. He is our only source of life and our only sure salvation. He is the chief cornerstone. And He is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the beloved Son sent by the Father as the full expression of His love and glorious purposes in the Gospel. 
I want you to pause for a moment from your home and consider the depth of this parable as it comes upon you this morning. And I want you to hear the reality of this text. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to consider again why. Why have you not placed faith in Him? And then if you I want you to consider, is, that, is there honest reasons for that? Or are you justifying that as the Pharisees were? Are you justifying over in your, over in your mind, trying to think up ideas when you know the truth confronts you and you need to submit to Jesus today? And you can do that from your own home. Act of your will to confess your sin, to recognize who you are, and to commit to follow Jesus, to lay down your lordship, as he says, and follow him. Make him Lord and Savior of your life. But church, Hill Church, I want us to see in this text this morning the riches of who we are, the riches of who God's made us in his son. We are his people. We are a spiritual house unto the Lord. We get to labor on his behalf. He's our chief cornerstone. So as the worship team comes back up, I want to close us in prayer. Father in heaven, we pause again after a, a rich text. We We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fullness of your revelation to us in your son. We thank you for the way in which he unfolds, that he makes clear history itself. And that we can read through the pages of scripture and see this beautiful plan that you've had for generations. That ultimately came to fulfillment in your son. And that we now, on this side of the cross, get to partake in the riches that Christ offers as his people. We say thank you. And Lord, my prayer for anyone who doesn't know you this morning is straightforward. I, I pray you would convict their heart, Lord. I pray you would sear into their conscience that one question. What will you do with the Son? Who is he to you? What will you do with him? That they will see again and recognize the truth of the Bible. That they will have to stand before you. And give an account of their life. And what they have done with the Son. And Lord might you cause them to turn their affection to you this morning. Lord we love you and thank you in Jesus name.